Malachi chapter number 1 this morning, and I'd like to read a few verses to you, beginning at verse number 6. The Word of God says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? I, uh, o priest, excuse me, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle a fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness it is. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick, Thus ye brought an offering, should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Let's read verse 13 once more and we'll pray. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it, and ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Notice the question God asks. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning. That you'd help me to get out of the way. Lord, that I'd not say anything that I ought not to say. That I'd not hesitate from saying anything that you'd have me to say. Lord, that I'd only be a vessel to be filled and poured out this morning. God, I pray that the cross of Jesus Christ, His worthiness, His glory, His majesty, would be set forth and would be acknowledged in this place today. If there's any amongst us that are lost and undone, Lord, You and You alone know hearts. And I pray that before it's everlasting too late, that they'd come to acknowledge their fallen condition, that they're sinners in need of a Savior, and they'd come to you, Lord, before they die. I pray that you would accomplish in each heart what would bring you the most glory. And Lord, that when we leave this place, we'll know above all things that we've met with you, that we've worshipped you, that we've been obedient to you. And Lord, that you're pleased with us. Father, not for our glory, but for yours. We ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Malachi, as has already been mentioned, is the last book of the New Testament. Chronologic or the Old Testament. Chronologically, it's the last book, as well as in the canon of Scripture. The children of Israel have been, uh, they've got a long and storied history. 
They began with a man that the Bible calls a Syrian ready to perish. God spoke to Abraham, brought him out of pagan darkness, and led him into a knowledge of the true and only God. From him a family grew through bondage, through suffering, to an entire nation. God led them out of Egypt as the children of Israel, brought them by the hand of Joshua into the land of Canaan. Their rebellion once again was laid bare and made evident. They asked for a king. God sent them Saul. It wasn't the king that God would have chosen, but they wanted a king. And you know, a lot of times when we get impatient with the Lord, He'll give us less than His best, because to get His best, we've got to wait for it. There's a lot of times when what God gives us isn't what He'd want to give us, but because we won't wait, that's what He has to give us. God, through Saul's disobedience, takes the kingdom away from him, and David is raised up, who is a righteous king, a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect, but he was a man after God's own heart. The kingdom is split after David's son Solomon leaves the throne, and it goes into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, the nation of Israel, is uh, basically obliterated through the Assyrians. But the southern kingdom, by the name of Judah, is taken into captivity captivity through the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar. Seventy years they spend in bondage, suffering for their sins, suffering for their rebellion. God delivers them out of captivity and brings them back into the land. The temple is rebuilt. I guess I say all that to say this. You'd think they'd learn their lesson, wouldn't you? But then I look at our life, and I look at all the times that God should have just snuffed us out, but He didn't. And sometimes I think to myself, you know, you'd think I would learn my lesson. And so here they are with this long-storied history, and they find themselves complacent and backslidden once again. God gives a word of prophecy by a man by the name of Malachi. My old preacher used to always say he was the Italian prophet Malachi. You know, old preachers tell old jokes, amen. <laughs> and uh, a scathing word of reproach is given from the mouth of God. Now, I want to take a few moments this morning, and I want to focus on the question that God asks in verse 13. God asks a rhetorical question. You say, preacher, how do you know it's rhetorical? Because that's the only kind of questions God asks. God has all the answers, all the information. So if He asks a question, He's not asking it for His benefit. He's asking it for our benefit. And He asks this question. He describes their their spiritual condition. He describes the way they've lived, the way they've served, what they've given to Him. And He asks them a question that He expects them to answer. He says, should I accept this of your hand? And I want to ask you a question this morning, and I hope this doesn't come off unkind or rude. But I want to ask you something. Do you think if you were God that you'd be satisfied with your service? I said if if you were God, if you'd done everything for you that God has done for you, do you think you'd be satisfied with the service that you give to the Lord? You see, at the end of the day, I think sometimes God's opinion of our Christianity and our opinion of our Christianity is vastly different. We live in a day where Christianity has become very self-centered. We think that if we're all right with our Christianity, God must be all right with our Christianity. Because there's no one better than us. And if there's anyone better than us, it must be God. And He's just barely better. He's just like me. The truth of the matter is, you know, I talked to you about truth a moment ago. We was all excited about truth until you found out what I was preaching. Amen. (laughs) The truth will make you free. Will you be honest this morning? 
about your spiritual condition. You see, when we read about these priests and about the nation of Israel, I think sometimes we get a very different picture of what their day-to-day life looked like than what it would have looked like if you'd been living there. You see, when I read about these saints in the book of Malachi, I see some things that, you know, sometimes it would pay us to pay attention in the Word of God. Because there's some things that are noted and said in here that if you're not careful, you'll miss it and you'll skip over it and you'll get a totally different picture. You see, I think there's a tendency when we read Malachi chapter 1 to see the nation of Israel as being paganistic, heathenistic, being decadent, being sinful, being taken with all manner of lust and all manner of wickedness. But when I read the passage before me, I see a few hints that tell me it might have been otherwise. Can I say a quick word this morning about the condition of the saints? This isn't even really my message, but I think that needs to be touched on. I want you to notice three things about these. But Now remember, God said this. God said this about the nation of Israel. In this passage, He said, I have no pleasure in you. You know, we get awful judgmental. And there's a lot of folks that gripe about people being judgmental. And what they mean is folks being honest with them. But, I mean, we get, we get judgmental about Bible characters. You know, every one of us, if we was an apostle, we would have done better than the apostles. Am I right? I mean, we always, if it had been us, we wouldn't have denied him. Uh, we wouldn't have looked away from him and sunk in the water. I mean, we, we get awful judgmental about the disciples. And I think the same thing's true about the nation of Israel. Well, we, we tend to say, well, if it had been us in the wilderness, you know, I wouldn't have griped, I wouldn't have complained. I, sure you would have, because you're human, just like they were human. And as we read this passage, I think sometimes it's easy to look at it and say, how could they ever get in such a condition as they were in? But I want you to notice three things that they were doing. And this might alarm you. Notice with me verse number 10. Look what the Word of God says. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Now, what's the Word of God talking about here? Well, it goes on to say this. Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. So what he's talking about when he talks about shutting the doors for naught, The Word of God exhorts us in the New Testament. Christ said that when you pray, go into your closet and shut the door. Don't pray in the streets like the hypocrites. Don't pray with vain repetitions and for the ears of men. But go in your closet and pray. In other words, nothing wrong with praying in public. Nothing wrong with having a public testimony. But if the only relationship you've got, and if the only prayer life you've got is when you bow your head over your meal or when somebody asks you to have a word of prayer in public, you haven't got much of a prayer life because the substance of the believer's prayer life ought to be the private prayer life. And what God is talking about in this passage is He said, who is there among you that would come and pray to me and not need anything? Who'd come and shut the doors for not? You know what that tells me? That tells me these were praying people. If God says you won't come and pray for me when you don't need anything, the implication is that when you do need something, you do come and pray to me. I propose to you that these were praying people that God is reproaching. I mean, these aren't the kind of people that shake their fist at God, you understand. These aren't the kind of people that would never darken the doorstep of the church house. These are the kind of folks that were faithful. These are the kind of folks that had a prayer life. But God has something to say about their prayer life. Notice not only they were praying, but look down at verse number 7. The Word of God says, Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? Look down at verse 13, and notice this phrase. Just before the phrase we took note of as our uh, title, the Word of God says, Thus ye brought an offering. I'd say that these were praying people, but I'd say these were serving people. The Word of God is very explicit that the problem wasn't that they weren't sacrificing. The problem was what they were sacrificing. 
In other words, we're not talking about a group of people that refuse to go to the house of God. We're not talking about a group of people that refuse to open their wallet or their pocketbook for the cause of Christ. We're talking about a group of people that you would have seen serving and working and in the house of God. These were a group of people that were church-going people. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we read this passage, we think of a bunch of pagans and heathens and people that are never in the house of God. When I read this passage, I see a group of praying, church-going people. But God says, I'm not pleased with you. Notice a third thing. Look again at verse 13. Look at the first phrase. You said also, behold, what a weariness is it. I've got this opinion that if you're in church long enough, you're going to get put out with folks. Am I, am I speaking truth to you this morning? It's the truth that makes you free, right? It's not just good sermons, not just snorting and stomping, it's not just illiterate. It's the truth that makes you free. If you're in church long enough, you're going to get put out with folks sometimes. You know the folks that never get put out with anyone. You know why that is? Most times because they ain't in church all that much. <laughs> I'm saying the more you're in church, the more you're going to deal with problems and people problems. The New Testament church is the only entity in the entire world that is flawless in its structure. You know that? It is structured by the Word of God and by the divine plan of the Lord. There are no structural or administrative problems. There are no overlapping of duties in the house of God. There's no place where you have to let a duty slide to perform another one. The New Testament church is perfectly structured. But you know there's still problems in the New Testament church always. I don't care what church you go to. If you're there long enough, you're going to see problems. Everybody's got warts. Everybody's got flaws and failures. And you spend enough time in the house of God, you're going to see them. So that tells me something. If the church has no problems, uh, and there are still problems in the church, if there's no problems with the intrinsic structure of the church, but if you spend enough time in church, that tells me that every church has people problems. Problems that are caused by people. Because we're in the flesh. I'm in the flesh. You're in the flesh. You cause problems. I cause problems. I cause more problems than you cause, probably. So what I'm saying is this. Anybody that's in church long enough, they're going to get put out sometimes. This is a group of people that were put out. So you know what that tells me? It tells me they were steadfast. That tells me this was not the type of people that the first problem that arose, they just bailed. You know, that's the society we live in today. First bit of adversity, first bit of problem, just bail, just get out, just run. There's lots of folks that use anything as an excuse to stay out of church. But can I tell you something? These weren't those people. They said, what a weariness is it? Why was it a weariness to them? Because they were steadfast and they had stuck in in the house of God. I say this because I want you to understand that we're not talking about the folks sitting at home that church-going folks like to talk about. We're not talking about the folks that are out of church this morning that, that church-going folks like to talk about. And you know why? Because it's always easier to talk about someone else than it is to talk about ourselves. We're not talking about them this morning. No, friend, we're talking about praying people. We're talking about serving people. We're talking about steadfast people. We're talking about sacrificial people. But God says this. He says, I have no pleasure in you. In other words, God's opinion of their Christian walk was vastly different than their opinion of their Christian walk. I wonder how many of us, if God was willing to speak to our hearts this morning and tell us there's something wrong, I wonder how many of us would side with truth over comfort. I wonder how many of us would side with truth over our own pride. I'm asking you this morning, if God told you something was wrong in your spiritual walk, do you love Him enough to acknowledge it? 
I want you to notice not only the condition of the saints, but I want you to notice the complaint of the Almighty. He says three things. He says a lot of things, but three things in particular about God's attitude and opinion and response to their Christian walk. I want you to notice first off verse number 10. What does he say? He says, Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. He says, I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. We all like to believe God is pleased with us. And I would say the mantra of modern day Christianity is no matter what you've done, God's pleased with you. Have you ever noticed that you don't hear folks talking much about the fact that our sins can hinder our prayer life? I'm talking about this Facebook Christianity. The only reason I say it is because that's how most folks, that that's the most public and vocal that most folks get about their Christianity is on Facebook. Most of them would never dream about witnessing, but they'll say something on Facebook about it. And something you'll find if you pay attention to it, or if you just pay attention to the, to the TV Christianity, or you pay attention to uh, some of the uh, best-selling book Christianity, is that every time there's a problem, the problem is never with you. It's not that you've sinned or done wrong or been disobedient. It's always that you didn't understand something. It's always that you need to be enlightened. You need to buy the next book set or the next tape set, the next CD set. It's never simply that our personal walk is not where it needs to be. What does God say about these folks? He says, I'm not pleased with you. Now, these are a group of people. I mean, God doesn't tell us anything but what we need to know. Isn't that true? God doesn't waste His breath. God said to them that I'm not pleased with you because to their mind, God was pleased with them. I'm convinced that much of modern day Christianity that brags about how spiritual that it is, that brags about how righteous they are because they give barely 10%, how righteous they are because they make it to church once a week, how righteous they are because they read their Bible occasionally, how righteous they are because they pray over their meal. I've got a feeling that God looks at it and is disgusted with it. He says, I'm not pleased with you. I'm talking about me this morning. If it hits you, God bless you, but I'm preaching at me this morning. I'm saying we have a lot higher opinion of our Christianity than God does more often than not. God looked at these people. I'm talking about His people, His covenant people, His elect people. And I don't mean elect in the Calvinistic sense, amen, because there ain't no elect in the Calvinistic sense. I mean elect in that these were the Jewish people. He loved them. He treasured them. They were the apple of His eye. They'd been through absolutely everything there was to go through. And here they are. God has been faithful to them. And they look like they're serving. And they look like they're doing the right thing. But God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. And He says, when I look at you, I'm not pleased with what I see. He said, I'm not pleased with you. Look at verse number 13. He says this, should I accept this of your hand? God says, not only am I not pleased with you, But he says, I reject what you're doing. You know, and this is really where it gets down to the nitty gritty. I'm convinced that there are a lot of things that we think we're doing for God that we're going to get to the heaven and we're going to get to the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to find out that there was a lot of stuff that we said we was doing for Jesus Christ that we wasn't doing for Jesus Christ that he is not interested in and didn't accept whatsoever. Let let me read a passage. Can I read a passage to you? I hope that's okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says this, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the beginning point. If you've never been saved, then you need to be saved. That's the beginning point. If you've never been saved, you have no foundation. You may be a good person, you may be a church member, you may have all the morals in the world, but you'll still die and go to hell, because the only foundation is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But that's where it begins. That's not where it ends. It says, now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be manifest. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't say every man's sins shall be manifest. It says every man's work. He's not talking about stuff that you're tearing down. He's talking about stuff that you're building up. He's not talking about your unrighteousness. He's talking about the things that you've done, that you thought you was doing for the Lord or you claimed you was doing for the Lord. He says, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day. What day? Well, Paul only had two days that he lived in. He talked about today and he talked about that day, that day of judgment, that day when he'd stand before the Lord. He says, because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sword it is. Every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Can I give you an illustration that I've always thought of it like? I imagine what what it would be like to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And I just know human nature enough to know what I would do and what you'd probably do. Uh, You know, we, we talk all the time about looking forward to the day when the Lord comes. And I understand that. I'm looking forward to the to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am. But you know what Paul said about it? Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. That's what he said, speaking about the second coming. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You know what the Word of God says in the Old Testament? It says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. It says, The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. So that don't fit in with this, with this candy cane theology that the world is promoting today. But that's the reality of it. A lot of us are going to have a lot to answer for at the judgment seat of Christ. And when that day comes, you know, I can imagine what I'll do. I can see myself walking up with my calendar. Walking up with my calendar that represents my whole life. And I've told this before, so if you've heard it, you can just go sleep. But... I, walking up with my calendar, you know. I don't know how long it'll be. I'm 27 years old right now. I may not make it to 27 and a half or 28. Somebody may, I may preach a message like this. Somebody may knock me over the head in the parking lot and kill me. I don't know. But however long it is, I can see myself approaching to the Lord with my calendar and saying, Lord, look at all the things that I've done for you. Lord, I've been a preacher these many years. I've been a pastor these many years. I've served, I've seen folks say, Lord, look at all this that I've done for you. And I can see the Lord looking at it and saying, yeah, go ahead and cross this week off. Why, Lord? What do you mean cross that week off? Well, that week you were in the flesh, Toby. That week you were in the flesh. Lord, that was just one week. Well, go ahead and cross this month out. Month? Lord, why would I cross a month out? That month, you were doing it so that men would approve and not for me. You see, there's lots of things we do for the Lord, but just because we do it for the Lord, that don't mean He accepts it. You hear people say this all the time, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not fussing at our folks because I, I, most of our folks know better, but... You know, you get these people that want to, you know, they're going to worship the Lord on the golf course, at the lake, where, where have you. Listen, I, I, th- I think the Lord would be a lot more pleased if you just admit you was laying out than try to say you was worshiping up there. The truth shall make you free. The truth. The Lord said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. In other words, not gathered together to recreate, to hit a few hen eggs around a pasture field. Not gathered together to do a little fishing. Not gathered together to do a little hiking. But gathered together in my name. You say, preacher, I can't worship God 
up at the mountains. No, you can worship God up at the mountains. There's probably not enough good Bible-believing churches up in the mountains. I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to go up there. You need to win some folks to the Lord. You need to find a place that you can meet. You need to find somebody that God would have to pastor a group of people. And you can meet in the mountains. All that God would have you to meet in the mountains. What I am saying is this. There's this this buffet-style Christianity that's persistent. And a lot of folks, you know, uh, they, they think worship is just what they want it to be. They think service is just what they want it to be. I'm not fussing at you. I'm not, I'm not griping at you. And I sure ain't mad this morning. I'm just merely saying that there's a lot of things that we think God ought to accept because we would accept them. When that doesn't mean it measures up to God's standard. He says, I'll not accept it. Look at verse number 9. And now I pray you, beseech God that He will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means... Will he regard your person? That tells me that God will not only not be pleased, God will not only not accept it, but God will not even regard it. You remember I said, I kind of think, at least in some sense, that there's going to be a lot of things we say we've done for the Lord that the Lord's not even going to recognize. And sometimes I think the things that we spend the most energy on are things that doesn't even register on God's radar. He says, I'll not regard your person. We know that the Word of God says that God is no respecter of persons. We know that, don't we? That's what the Bible says, right? Still with me? I mean, listen, if, I, if, I'm on, if, if we're going to feed you on all them sugary desserts, I can't give you sugar in the morning service, amen? It'd be too much. You'd walk out here with your blood sugar, all, all out of sorts. God says, I'll not eat. He says, I am no respecter of persons. And he says, when you offer the things you offer to me, he says, I don't, want, I don't accept it just because of who you are. I don't accept it just because of who you are. Now, let me make a statement here. None of us are worthy. I don't care who you are. None of us are worthy. We've been made worthy by the person of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful? Oh, yeah, I'm getting some amens. All right. Woo, glory. Now I'm getting some. But don't think for one minute, just because we're saved, that God is pleased with everything we do. I'm thankful that my sin has been judged at Calvary. I'm thankful that I'll never be judged as a sinner ever again. But I have still yet to be judged as a servant. I'm right now being judged as a son. That's my relationship with the Lord as a son. When I sin, He chastises me. Every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. And one day when I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, there I'll be judged as a servant. I won't be judged for my sin, but I'll be judged for my service. And my work will be made manifest what sort it is. I wonder how many of us think we've got a lot of gold, silver, and precious stones when when God looks at it, He sees wood, hay, and stubble. Can I give you a few things this morning? That was a good introduction. Can I give you a few things that I think negates our service for the Lord in this passage? Notice with me not only the condition of the saints and the complaint of the Almighty, but I want you to notice the cause of the Lord's rejection. We see five things very quickly in this passage that caused the Lord to reject what they had done. Notice verses 7 and 8. He says, Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Now notice this question. Let me tell you something. The Word of God preaches harder than any preacher can. Notice what it says. 
He says, offer it now unto thy governor. You know what a governor was at this time? It was a master. It wasn't in the sense of a, of a, a judicial governor, although it could have been, but it was in the sense of a master, an employer. He says, offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? saith the Lord of hosts. I think the first thing that causes the Lord to disregard our service is when we serve Him with our leftovers. When we serve Him with our leftovers. You know what's implied in this text, don't you? I don't, I'm all, You ready to go into this with me? Are you ready? Let's hold hands. I know you don't think... You know, when I was, when my, when I was growing up, my daddy used to say this to me. He used to say, uh, when he'd give me a whipping... He used to say, you know, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. And I used to think, you liar. <laughs> I used to think, well, let me whip you. That's really the way to punish me then. It's hurting me as well. But you know what's implied here? What's implied is that while they're giving God that which is polluted, they're giving unto their governor that which is the best. I wonder how many of us tonight are going to make sure and get in bed good and early. Get a good night's rest. Lay our clothes out. Make sure and pack our lunch. And get everything ready so that we can get up and be at work on time tomorrow. I wonder how many of us would not dare miss a day of work tomorrow. You know what we'd say? Can't afford it. Can't afford it. God says, why don't you treat your earthly masters the way you're treating your heavenly master and see where it gets you? You know the reality of it? The reality of it is most of the time we give God the leftovers in every area of our life. You know what most folks say? You ask them if they're going to serve, if they're going to work. They'll say, well, if I can get time, I don't know, I've got to work. I'm not fussing at you. Everybody works. It's good for a man to work. The Bible says if a man won't work, then he ought not eat. And a man that won't provide for his family is worse than an infidel and hath denied the faith. Don't misunderstand me. But I also believe that duties never conflict. Don't you believe that? I believe God's never going to make you choose between two things that He's asked of you. And oftentimes what we really mean when we say, I don't have time, we don't mean I don't have time to work and to be in the house of God, or I don't have time to work and to uh, serve the Lord. Usually what we mean is I don't have time to work and serve the Lord and do all the recreational and foolishness that we like to have a part in. I'm not against recreation. We all need recreation. I mean, we get wound tight sometimes. Isn't that right? I mean, I've seen folks wound so tight I thought their hair was just going to suck up in their head. We all need recreation. I'm not fussing about it. I'm just merely saying this morning, are you giving God your best? We, we were tallying up what we spent on Christmas, me and my wife were. Makes you sick. <laughs> Makes you sick, don't it? It's always more than it was the previous year. And the Lord convicted me, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm giving so much to so many, but I'm not giving the Lord anything extra. I'm just sharing with you. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you came and expected me to climb the walls this morning. I don't know. But I'm just sharing with you this morning. I'm saying I'm guilty of giving God my leftovers. I'm saying I'm guilty at times of putting my energy and my time and my finances into so many things and just giving God what's left over at the end of the day. I believe God looks at it and says, I'm not pleased with that. In fact, I won't even accept it. 
I wonder how many of us set our standard of living before we set our standard of giving. I wonder how many of us pay our bills before we pay our tithe. I wonder how many of us determine how much money is just left over at the end of doing everything we want to do and whatever that is, that's what God gets. I'm I'm a firm believer in the fact that if you'll put God first, most of the time you won't have to choose between Him and your second place. If you'll just put Him first. You see, God's not interested in us living as paupers. God's not interested in us living in poverty. But God knows this about humanity, that you can't serve God and mammon at the same time. And a choice has to be made. That's the reason God attacks our wallet in the way He does. Not because He wants us poor and not because He needs our money. But because that's where the choice is. That's where the decision is. And sometimes it's not as much our money as it is the time we invest to get our money. And sometimes it's not as much our money as it is our unwillingness to give it to the things of the Lord when it needs to be given. I'm saying I don't believe God's pleased when we serve with our leftovers. Notice the second thing, verse number 10. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. In other words, God says, you don't ever come to me except you need something. I, I, I want to I preface this. I want to preface this by saying God's been awful good to me. God's met my needs and not just my needs, He's met my wants. And I believe when you have a need that the right thing to do is to take it to the Lord. I believe that with my whole heart. I believe that if you've got a health need, you ought to take it to the Lord. The Bible says the prayer of faith shall save the sick. I believe that when you've got a financial need, I believe you ought to take it to the Lord because the Lord says, ask and you shall receive. I believe that when you have an emotional need or a spiritual need, you ought to take it to the Lord because don't misunderstand me. The Bible says be careful for nothing, but with in all things with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds. But I'm merely saying this. Is there ever a time when you just go just to talk to Him? See, I believe when we serve Him with our leftovers, He rejects it. But I believe when, he ser- when we serve Him selfishly, He rejects it. Let me tell you something. It'll be, And I don't mean to just, just harp on giving. But let me say this. It'll be a great day in your life when you learn to value the giver more than the gift. It'll be a great day in your life when the joy you get out of giving is not because God will bless you, but because it blesses God. It'll be a great day in your life when you come to the place where when you give to the Lord, it's not so that He'll give back, uh, shaking and pressed down and shaking together and running, but you just give because He's worthy. We live in a selfish Christianity culture today. Everything's all about what God can do for us. And I'm thankful God can do all things. I'm not trying to minimize it. But I'm merely saying this. It's not all about you, nor is it all about me. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. To Him be the glory. To Him be the praise. To Him be the honor. It's not about our comfort. not about our happiness. You'll never be happier than when you're serving the Lord. But understand, it's not about your happiness. It's not about what God can do for you. It's about what you can do for Him. Notice the third thing. Look at verse 11. The Word of God says, For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. 
but ye have profaned it, in that ye say, The table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. I think when we serve him with our leftovers, he rejects it. I think when we serve him selfishly, he rejects it. But I think when we serve him with complaint, he rejects it. Notice very carefully, it says, when ye say, ye have said that the table of the Lord is contemptible. I've known some folks do anything in the world for you, just so long as they can complain about it all along the way. And I know some folks that don't never complain, but it's because they don't do nothing. They ain't got nothing to complain about. You know, I kind of think, you know, the chief sin of the nation of Israel during their 40 years of wilderness wandering was complaining. Above and beyond everything, that was their chief sin, was that of complaining. You know, we complain because we're self-centered. The more a person complains, it's because the more self-centered that they are. We all complain. I don't care who you are. We all complain. I was complaining to my wife this morning. Say, you do that, preacher? Yeah, I do that. I was complaining to her this morning. We all complain at times because we're self-centered. But you know that anything that we do that is self-centered instead of Christ-centered is of none effect in the cause of Christ and in the spiritual realm. We need to learn that we're just... (laughs) Oh, you know what Paul said? He said, I thank God that He counted me faithful and put me in the ministry. We ought to get to the place, and I appreciate those that will do without complaining, do without applause. Do without having to have everybody stop and pat them on the back. You'll never know how much that I appreciate it and others appreciate it. Because there's some folks, the only way they'll do is if they can complain while doing it. I believe God's displeased with that. You know what we're doing? We're telling the Lord that it's not an honor to serve Him when we complain. And that the truth shall make you free. Isn't that true? We're telling the Lord that serving Him is not an honor when we complain. In the midst of serving. Well, I'm not guiltless, nor are you. When we serve him with complaint. Look at verse 13. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. I think when we serve him begrudgingly, that God disregards it. You say, but preacher, you just talked about that when you said, if we serve him with complaint. No, 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 no. That's not exactly the same thing. You know why? Because there's... There's some folks that'll never complain, but if you could see their heart, they're serving him begrudgingly. Did you know that I have that that I'm still flesh? Do you know that? I don't know if you knew that. I am. I still have a sin nature. I, there's a battle consistently between my spiritual man and my natural man. And if there are times when there's not a battle, it's usually because I'm just letting the natural man win. So every one of us has the spiritual battle, if we've been saved, that takes place. But understand, you know what the Bible says? Boy, again, we keep going back to this given thing. I didn't plan this. You can see my notes if you want to. I, I, didn't, I didn't plan this. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. Cheerful. Cheerful. The Bible says whatsoever we do, to do it all unto the Lord, unto Him and to His glory. Everything that we do, we ought to do as unto the Lord. You know, the truth is, there's a lot of us that will serve God, but if you knew where our heart was at, you'd know that somewhere down deep inside we're bitter about doing it. We don't want to do it. And you know what we've said? What a weariness is it. What a weariness is it. Too much work. 
too much trouble. I was laying in bed last night and I was thinking about our camp and, and all the hard workers that we have that, that work at our camp. What a blessing. I, I was just thinking about, and I don't, I don't say this to butter any of them up. we got a lot of them in the room. But, but honestly, I was thinking about what a blessing that it is to me as a pastor to have people that work so hard to put our camp on. It's a weary thing to work in the camp. I'm being honest with you now. I'm telling you the truth. If you thought, if you was excited to go because you thought it wasn't going to be hard work, I hate to burst your bubble. It's hard work. But I never see people happier, those that go and serve, than I see them while they're up there. You see, there's a difference between being weary and seeing the work of the Lord as weariness. You know the difference? You may be weary, but you know that the work of the Lord is not dragging you down, it's holding you up. And those that serve the Lord begrudgingly, it's because they see the work of the Lord as a hindrance to their life. Just as a duty and an obligation. Can I just be honest with you? You're wasting your time serving the Lord if that's all it is to you. And I, there may be people in here that have some kind of epiphany and say, what I've been doing, I've not been doing for the Lord. I'm just saying, you're going to get to the judgment seat of Christ one day. And it's not just going to be your work, it's going to be what sort of work it was. Your motivation, your attitude. It's, it's a glorious thing to serve the Lord. The greatest honor that there is, is to serve the Lord. But we need to understand that it's of no avail unless our heart is where it needs to be. Let me give you a final thing. Verse 14, I'm done. But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. I think that the Lord disregards our service not only when we serve Him with leftovers, when we serve Him selfishly or with complaint or begrudgingly, but I think the Lord disregards our service when we serve Him incompletely. You see, before He spoke about offering a polluted thing, but now He qualifies it by saying, That a man that hath a male in his flock, meaning a a male sheep or a male goat that was fit for sacrifice, but chose instead to give a corrupt thing, he says, cursed be that deceiver. Because you had more you could give and you didn't give. There was more you could do that you didn't do. I'm going to get in trouble for what I'm about to say. But you know, there's people all the time too sick to go to church, but you see them at the grocery store. Too sick to go to church, but you see him at the beauty parlor. You see him down at the oil change place. Oh, I know that's not popular. Truth, right? The truth shall make you free. Truth isn't always sweet now, but it's the truth. God says, cursed be that deceiver. Hath a male in his flock offers a corrupt thing. We live in a very polite society. I know you don't believe that. If all you ever do is look on Facebook and watch the news, you don't think that, but as you deal with humanity, you find that there is a politeness that sometimes hinders our Christian walk. You know why? Because we're so polite that we refuse to get honest. The honest truth is this. God knows what you can do. You don't have to do it for me or for anyone else. What me or anyone else thinks is irrelevant. 
But don't think just for one moment, just because we've grown up in the greatest country of the world where everybody's free to do what they want and it's their life and it's their business. Don't think for one moment that God doesn't know exactly who and what you are and who and what you can do and how much of it you're doing. Because He does. He does. He knows if you're holding back. He does. Now, the preacher may be polite and may say, well, you know, I understand. And the church folks, they may be polite and they may say, oh, I understand. And your family, they may be polite and they may say, oh, I understand. But don't think for one moment that's going to fly with an almighty God. Because he knows your heart. He knows your heart. He knows whether you're serving him wholeheartedly and completely. And here's the great secret, friend. You know it too. I asked you the question back when you were still amen in me. I wonder how many of us, if the Lord said something about our spiritual condition this morning, wonder how many of us would be honest, be obedient. I wonder if maybe God's touched on your heart about something. I wonder if you love Him enough to be honest. I wonder if you love the truth enough to be honest, to be honest and sincere. Because you see, nothing is ever accomplished through dishonesty. Nothing. I don't say this because I'm mad. I'm not mad. I'm getting ready to eat. How can you be mad getting ready to eat? Amen. I I don't say it because I'm frustrated or fussing at you. Church, I say it because I love you. And believe it or not, this book is true. It's not a bunch of fairy tales. It's not just something to get us through this life. The judgment seat of Christ is real. One of these days you're going to stand at it if you're saved. Just like I am. And I don't want on that day for you to see months and years and decades crossed off your calendar. I want what you have done to have mattered. I want what I've done to have mattered. Before that to take place, we've got to get serious about serving the Lord. And we've got to get honest about our walk with Him. If you're here and you're lost, you'll never make the judgment seat of Christ if you die in your sins. You'll be at the great white throne judgment where you'll be sentenced and condemned to an eternity in hell. You say, I don't believe that. Well, one day you will. One day you will. But rather than waiting to that day and your hope being forever lost, why don't you today get honest, honest now, serious and honest about your spiritual condition? And why don't you get saved before it's everlasting too late? The Lord loves you and wants to save you. But He won't force you. You've got to make that decision. I wonder how many of us are ready to be honest with the Lord.